Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. We have a very special road trip episode for you today, a time-traveling animal safari. Somehow this summer, we got a hold of this cool Jeep that allows us to travel around the world and through time. It's taken kind of a while to learn how to drive it. It's like a manual transmission. and There's been some seriously wrong turns through history. <laughs> we stalled out somewhere in ancient Egypt. But, you know, I think we finally got it to take us where we want to go, into the history of animals. Yes, we are going on a tour of animal evolution, exploring how animals change or evolve over time to survive. And there are some incredible tales of survival. Our summer intern Peter gave us this roadmap through our best episodes about animal evolution. So off we go on our first stop. Before we get to this week's episode of Tumble, we'd like to thank Poppy Singh for becoming a new supporter of Tumble on Patreon. You can join her at patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. And if you're waiting for a birthday shout-out, don't worry, you'll get it at the end of the episode. Just keep listening. Ooh, that wasn't far. Here at our first stop, we'll learn how some fish evolved to walk on land and eventually give us our own human legs. Let's flop into what if fish had legs. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're wondering, what if fish had legs? Wait, like a goldfish with human legs or like kangaroo legs where it would hop around? (laughs) It sounds like something that could only exist in your imagination. But fish with legs is actually a lot more real than you think. Okay, so... Today's question comes to us from What If World, a storytelling podcast that we really love. And here with us now is the host of What If World, Mr. Eric. Hey! I am so happy to be here. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Marshall, for having me. Well, thanks for being here, Mr. Eric. So, can you explain what What If World is and how it works? Oh, yeah. So we get what-if questions from our listeners, kids like you, and we take those questions and we turn them into weird and wacky stories, and we always try to throw in a nice lesson, too. Sometimes I'm lucky enough to have special guests like Lindsay and Marshall on my show as well. Yes, and so we'll be on your show coming up, which is your 200th episode. Um, And since we've been friends for, like, since the beginning of Kids Podcast, we wanted to celebrate it with you. I I am super happy and honored. And uh, should I play the question from our listener? Go right ahead. So here is our question from a listener named Madeline. My name is Madeline. I really like fish. And what if fish had legs? Let's ask our listeners what they think. What if fish had legs? Choose whether you want to answer scientifically or with a crazy made-up story. Or, you know, somewhere in between or like some combination of the two. Think about it, because when we come back, we'll ask a scientist, a funny fish scientist.
Solomon David is a fish biologist, or you can also call him an ichthyologist. Oh, is that because fish are icky? Good pun, Marshall. It works especially well here because Solomon is famous for his fish puns or wordplay. What is a pirate's favorite fish? Gars. The classic pirate pun never fails. Solomon studies a type of fish called gar, and he's got a gargantuan stock of gar puns. As far as the fish that I specifically work with, gar is only a three-letter word, so I feel like that just can pop up anywhere. We just had a presidential inauguration, so you could fit gar into inauguration. So, inauguration? I, I get it. We just landed that rover on Mars, and so I'm like, wait, we landed something on gars? Solomon made a picture of a rover landing on a gar for that one. It's pretty funny. I have to say, these are like pretty high quality fish puns. But what is a gar? So gars are a very unusual looking fish. Uh, If you imagine a crocodile or an alligator with fins instead of legs, that's essentially a gar. Wait, what? Maybe you take the alligator's tail and turn it into a paddle. So it's just like a (laughs) fishigator. Yeah, gars have a long snout, they're covered in armored scales, and they can get up to eight feet long. Oh my goodness, that's a big fish. They look really goofy looking, like they got this overbite and this long snout, they almost look like a Muppet version of a fish. It's time to get things started. It's time to swim in rivers. (laughs) You know, I think they look funny. They look uh, menacing in some ways, but I think they look cool overall and uh, and fascinating. Gars are an ancient fish. Scientists think they first appeared in the water around 150 million years ago. So these are fish that have been around since the time of the dinosaurs. So they kind of look like dinosaurs, and I guess they hung out with them too. So like before dinosaurs became birds. Exactly. And studying gars can help answer a lot of questions about freshwater ecosystems, conservation, and even genetics. I kind of look at it as using a single group of fish to answer a lot of questions. So I like to look at gars as almost this sort of Swiss army knife or a Swiss garmy knife, if you will. Swiss garmy knife. Oh, boy. (laughs) I bet he's a lot of fun at dinner parties. (laughs) Which is exactly why I thought Solomon was the right scientist to answer our silly question for today. He's like the closest you can get to a fish comedian. Okay, so could he answer our burning question... What if fish had legs? Sure, that's a great question. And I think, you know, in a way, it's it's not too far out there. Wait, what does he mean by that? It depends on how you define legs. In a lot of ways, fins are just underwater legs. That's crazy. <laughs> fins are underwater legs. So does that mean legs are out of water fins? <laughs> I like to think of fins as fish legs. <laughs> But then do fish think that our legs are human fins? And then what if we put on flippers? Solomon sorts this question out by thinking of both fish and humans as vertebrates, creatures with a backbone. Fish are considered to be vertebrates that when their limbs are present, they're present in the form of fins, which is different than tetrapods, which when their limbs are present, they're present in the form of legs, right? Okay, so tetrapod... That's like, okay, so I know from Tetris that tetra means four. 
I didn't know that from Tetris. And I know from being a big dinosaur fan that pod means foot. So <laughs> tetrapod is four foot. You get that exactly right. A tetrapod is a four-limbed animal. So I guess humans can still be tetrapods because we uh, use our front feet to play computer games. <laughs> so when it comes to fish legs versus land legs, the word tetrapod is really important because tetrapods came from fish. So you're saying land animals evolved from fish? Like we have fish ancestors? That sounds crazy. I look nothing like a fish, except when I put my hands on my cheeks and go blub, 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 blub. <laughs> so how do we know that? Well, for starters, because we can figure out the ages of fossils, we know that life existed in the oceans long before it existed on land. Fossils are arranged on a timeline called the fossil record. When we look back at the fossil record, we see these uh, transitional forms. In the fossil record, there's one kind of funny-looking organism that shows us the bridge between fish legs and land legs, and it's also got a funny name. Tiktaalik, yep. Tiktaalik? Is that like a fossil that's on TikTok? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, there's got to be like a Tiktaalik TikTok, right? So like a TikTok-lick, something like that. It's got to be out there. If it's not there, somebody's got to do it. Solomon can't do puns for all fish species. I know. There are he, a lot of them. He needs help. Anyway, Tiktaalik lived 375 million years ago. It's now extinct, but it looked like a cross between a fish and an alligator. It's, sounds kind of like a gar. <laughs> it is kind of like a gar, but its limbs are halfway between fins and legs. Scientists believe Tiktaalik could prop itself up in shallow water with bones that could bend like wrists. You can look at the bones in its wrist and see how they're similar to the bones of tetrapods and similarities to the bones in fish. So Tiktaalik was really living in both worlds between fish and tetrapods. Yes, and those legs and other adaptations like breathing and feeding on land continued to evolve until animals could finally adapt that land lifestyle they always wanted. But so is everything we know about the evolution of legs just based on this one fossil? No. Scientists also study today's fish that have similar traits. Um, scientists have studied fish called the lungfish, which are actually related to tetrapods. The lungfish is a fish, but it has some suspiciously tetrapod qualities that allow it to do some really non-fishy things. Um, and so they've looked at their fins and how they actually move underwater is similar to how tetrapods move on land. So they're basically walking underwater. That sounds like an incredible dance move. <laughs> By studying fish walking underwater, we can learn a lot about how tetrapods eventually learned how to walk on land. That's fascinating. Like, every human alive today and all of their pets evolved from a fishy ancestor. Yeah, but some fish are still living in that in-between stage. There's more fish than you might think of that actually use their fins as legs kind of moving across land. Wait, What? So some of these fish are what we call amphibious fish, or fish that can actually move on land. Hold up. Amphibious fish? So they can go in and out of water like a vehicle that's both boat and bus? Like a duck boat? 
<laughs> yes. Yes, yeah. a duck boat. Yes, these are the duck boats of the fish world. Um, there's fish called mud skippers that, you know, move along the mud flats, and some of them even jump. Um, there's fish called uh, the rivulus that will actually hop out of the water if it gets too warm. Wait, it just hops out of the water and is like, oh, skipping around. <laughs> Gonna walk to a cooler puddle. Watching these fish move on land is truly bizarre, but this adaptation helps them survive. There's fish called snakeheads that can actually kind of slither across land when their pond is in danger of maybe drying up or maybe it gets overcrowded. There's another fish called the walking catfish that, again, they kind of move, they use their fins and their bodies to move across land. <laughs> That's crazy. There's another fish called a polypterus, also known as a bashir. They're from Africa. They use their front fins, their pectoral fins, to prop themselves up. And scientists have done experiments with them to study how those early fishes made sort of a transition from water onto land. Scientists set up an aquarium kind of like a turtle tank. It had a land section and a swimming section. And the bashirs could easily survive on land in sort of a fish sphinx pose. It turns out some fish actually are okay with being fish out of water. Yeah, just make sure you never say, I feel like a Bashir out of water. Because then you're like totally fine. <laughs> um, so fish are pretty adaptive. I mean, that sounds like an understatement. I, I feel like I just learned that fish can do or be anything they want, including humans. <laughs> So the answer to what if fish had legs is ultimately fish do have legs. Lots and lots of weird fish legs. And I guess we have fish legs to thank for us being here standing at this very moment. So think of fish today and then take Solomon's parting piece of advice. Learn as much as you can about science to see what interests you and maybe you'll end up in the Garfield just like me. Ah, the Garfield. It's researching gars, but it's also a cartoon cat. <laughs> That's what makes it a pun. A gar pun. Can you think of any gar puns of your own? Solomon wants to hear them. Think of any word that has the word gar in it, like garbage, or words that you can kind of force gar into, like gart work. <laughs> or a garage. <laughs> a Formula One gar. It's a stretch. <laughs> All right. Send your gar puns to us in a voice message or a regular email will do as well. Solomon is excited to get them. People come up with puns that I never thought of. So I'm excited to see what the kids can come up with. I learned a lot about fish legs and gar puns. Thank you. I think listeners might hear a few gar puns on the story we're doing with you on What If World. So can you tell us how listeners can find your show? Oh, easy. You can just search for What If World or What If World Podcast anywhere online. You can search on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you listen. We're all over the place. And of course, our website is whatifworldpodcast.com. Listeners are definitely going to want to hear what happens when Marshall and I get trapped in a fish tank by a gar with legs. We'll have a link to it in the description of our show when it comes out. See everyone in What If World! Bye! So it turns out that fish do have legs, like, kind of. Some fish evolved to walk on land, some stayed in the water, and some do a bit of both. 
I'm more fascinated by my fishy ancestors because who knew that both humans and dinosaurs shared our great, 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 great grandparents. Like greater than that, probably. So great. <laughs> so speaking of dinosaurs, we're now traveling forwards in time to just before the rise of the dinosaurs. Well, I think I know what time that is. It's time for the rise of the dinosaurs episode. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, the science behind the rise of the dinosaurs. The age of the dinosaurs lasted 165 million years, but how did it start? The story involves fascinating fossils, intense lava eruptions, climate craziness, and ultimately the dinosaurs' domination of Earth. We're going to find out what happened and how scientists discovered it all. We have two dino-related questions for today's episode. Hi, my name is Elizabeth and I'm nine years old. My question is, what is the oldest dinosaur? I think that scientists might try to find the answer to my question by using fossils. Hi, I'm Andy from Pennsylvania and I'm six years old. My question is, how did the dinosaurs come alive? I think they came alive from the first animals. And I think scientists can find fossil evidence. Thank you. So Elizabeth wants to know the name of the first dinosaur on the planet. And Andy wants to know how dinosaurs came to be. Seems like they're asking really similar questions. I think so, too. Both of them are about how dinosaurs evolved in the first place. And, like, how did the age of dinosaurs come about? How dinosaurs get so awesome and stay awesome for so long? Exactly. And it turns out, the story of how dinosaurs came to be is as exciting and dramatic as the story of how they went extinct. They go from being very small, non-dominant creatures in their ecosystem to being the massive predators that we think of them today. That's scientist Jessica Whiteside. She studies mass extinctions, especially the one that led to the rise of the dinosaurs 200 million years ago. I asked her how she ended up doing what she does. As my mom likes to say, I always like to play in dirt, and still today I continue to play in dirt. Um, but I think it was a fascination for how things came to be. So next time your parents tell you you're getting dirty, you've got a great excuse. This could be your career. Exactly. So Jessica begins our story by taking us back to the time of the oldest dinosaurs, the Triassic period, 230 million years ago. So this was a very different world than what we live in today. Instead of the planet being arranged in the continents as we know them, there was actually one giant supercontinent named Pangaea. It basically looked just like Pac-Man, but straddled the equator and stretched from pole to pole. Basically, if you think of today's continents as puzzle pieces, Pangaea is the finished puzzle. It was one big landmass. Must have been like a lot easier to color in maps of the world back then, which was obviously something people were concerned about. <laughs> Just like a chunk of green, like, okay, green is Pangaea, and then blue is the ocean. There's just one. We actually only had one giant ocean called the Panthalassic Ocean. 
And it was a very, very warm world. The Triassic was a hot time for evolution. So mammals evolved in the Triassic, but very, very small ones. Lizards were there. Crocodile-like creatures were on the planet. A whole slew of very bizarre, funky things that only existed for about 60 million years were there as well. Pterosaurs evolve at the same time. The flying reptiles that are not dinosaurs but did live alongside them. And turtles as well. <laughs> Sounds like an awesome supercontinent animal party. <laughs> like, yo, come to Pangaea. We got a bunch of bizarre, funky things here. Also turtles. <laughs> the turtles are the hardest partiers. <laughs> you know that, right? <laughs> it just takes them a long time. <laughs> like, I'm totally dancing now. Scientists can still see the remains of this evolutionary party in what's called the rock record. Like, check out this awesome rock record. I'll put it on the turntable now. Let's keep this party evolving. <laughs> a geologist's rock record is a little bit different from that. It's how they tell the ages of the layers of sedimentary rock going back hundreds of millions of years. It helps paleontologists match up fossils around the world. And the first two dinosaurs come from the same levels in the rock record. And those are from Argentina. And their names are Eoraptor and Herarosaurus. Eoraptor and Herarosaurus were both springy-looking dinosaurs that walked upright on two legs with shorter, little arms. Eoraptor would have only come up to an adult's knees and Herarosaurus to our hips. So those are the first two dinosaurs then? The first that we know of. Probably were earlier dinosaurs, but we don't actually have them preserved. Meaning we haven't found any fossils of older dinosaurs. But if they do exist, they've yet to be discovered. Well, so what makes scientists say Aoraptor and Herarosaurus, you guys, you're the first true dinosaurs. Everybody else, fakers. <laughs> Well, they both have a special feature in their skeletons that scientists have decided makes a dinosaur a dinosaur. So it has a hole in its hip socket. It has a ball shape on its femur that allows for attachment so that it can stand more upright. And it has pieces of its skeleton that are fused together that allow for that upright stance. So that's it? Just a hole in the hip socket, a couple merged backbone pieces that makes a dinosaur a dinosaur? <laughs> Yep, so it can stand upright. That doesn't mean that all dinosaurs walked on two feet. There's obviously a lot that walked on four. But what it does is helps them get their feet underneath them rather than sprawling out to the side like crocodiles and lizards. But what about like fearsome jaws and treacherous claws and like cool spikes on their tails? <laughs> no, it's all in that piece of the anatomy. Scientists trace the origins of the dinosaurs back through fossil skeletons to animals with hip sockets that look like they're just about to start having a hole. Like the evolution of springing a leak in your hip bone just takes hundreds of millions of years. <laughs> Apparently, that was a successful trait. After Eoraptor and Herarosaurus show up, paleontologists can see more and more dinosaurs appearing over the next 35 million years. More dinosaurs! Woo, dinosaur parties gotten started. There's lots of new species evolving and everything is great. But then something really big changes the world forever. 
We talked about the Triassic being a weird and wonderful world that all the continents were joined together into the supercontinent Pangaea. But at the end Triassic, it starts rifting apart. If you think of baseball seams on a baseball ripping apart, it literally, the continent rips apart and the Atlantic begins to open. What's actually causing that are these massive lava ruptures, which are huge cracks that go deep, deep into the earth. Wow. So, like, the earth just opens up and spews molten rock. Like, I guess you wouldn't want to be near that. We can see the remains of these lava eruptions today in the form of lava rocks. And we can tell when they happened thanks to radioactive elements that set a chemical timestamp on them. Put together, the eruptions covered an area larger than the continental U.S. Whoa, that is enormous. These massive volcanic eruptions threw up all kinds of gases from deep, deep within the Earth's interior into the atmosphere. These gases made the climate go totally haywire. And it's a combination, a double whammy of it being hot for a long, long time following that kills plants and other life forms. Carbon dioxide and methane gas made it hot, and sulfur gases made it cold. So there could have even been freezing temperatures in the tropical regions, which is not something we would ever associate with today's world. It got really cold, but only for brief snapshots of time throughout the million years that it took for all these lava eruptions to happen. That's just nuts. Like, a million years of lava eruptions with flashes of cold spells? Like, who wants to live in that? We don't know how many animals actually wanted to live in that. <laughs> there was no polling data. But we can say data. that very few actually did. Scientists estimate that around half of life on Earth went extinct, including the ones at the top of the food chain. So in the late Triassic, the major predators were the crocodile-like creatures. But at this mass extinction event, those scaly creatures could not withstand the cold temperatures. All the crocodile-like creatures except the actual crocodile and the alligator went extinct. And that gave the dinosaurs the opening they didn't know they'd been waiting for. And so when the crocodile-line creatures go extinct, well, dinosaurs, they basically end up with their competitors extinct and they grow to tremendous sizes and spread out throughout the world. So after the extinction event, the dinosaurs look around, see literally nothing big enough to challenge them, and think, now's our time. <laughs> when dinosaurs took crocodiles' place as the top predator on the planet, they could afford to evolve bigger and heavier. And we know that mainly from the footprint record. There are thousands and thousands of footprints along the coast of eastern North America Scientists match these dinosaur footprints to dinosaur skeletons and then use chemical methods to date them or find out how old they are. Not like go out to the movies with the fossils. Have them over for some dinner. Fossil, you gotta have some more pasta, maybe? Oh, you don't eat because you're just a rock? Let's just say that back before they became fossils, the dinosaurs were definitely eating. The footprints of dinosaurs change in a way that indicate that their body mass doubled. This didn't happen overnight. Scientists think that the extinction event could have killed off almost all of the herbivores that were not dinosaurs. They were probably eating fish until different animals had enough time to evolve for them to start eating again. 
In other words, dinosaurs had to wait a while for a good carnivore meal. Wow, so it was like a slow rise of the dinosaurs. But, but what gave them the edge? Why didn't they go extinct along with the rest of life on Earth? We think it's a combination of two things. One is that dinosaurs were able to stand upright. So when there was a combination of massive warming and massive cooling, they could more easily maybe get up sides of mountains or this type of thing and actually escape local perturbations. Meaning individual dinosaurs could escape those dangerous changes in the environment. So they could move faster than other creatures. The second, and I think the most important, is that every major type of dinosaur we know in its juvenile or if it's in its infant form had feathers. And not necessarily the flat feathers that we talked about for flight, but feathers that were a downy, insulating one to keep them warm. That's something that their scaly competitors did not have. So dinosaur feathers were like the essential outdoor gear of the extinction event. So these cooling times that happened, crocodiles would not have been able to survive without a jacket, so to speak. But the insulation provided by feathers possibly allowed the dinosaurs to win the extinction lottery at this interval because that warmth was punctuated by brief times of super cold temperatures. Man, that's incredible. So dinosaurs just happen to have these two traits, like feathers and a hip socket with a hole in it. That's all they had to put in their bag to survive the trip. It's not what you would think of packing to a million years of lava eruptions, but evolution works in odd ways. It happened to favor the dinosaurs. They were lucky. And so are we, because dinosaurs are awesome, and we get to look at them now. Yes. Well, they're bones. Birds, Marshall, they're birds. All right, so we get to see grackles outside our window and think, hmm, awesome dinosaur. But to go back to Elizabeth and Andy, do we know this whole story about the rise of dinosaurs because of fossils? Like, are they right? They are, but it's not just fossils like bones. The story of the evolution and rise of dinosaurs is one that's not just based on the skeletons. It's based on these other chemical fossils, molecular fossils that tell us about the climate. These molecular fossils are found in the rock record that we mentioned earlier. They're tiny, but they're full of clues about the climate and the environment. Jessica's job is to find out what they mean. It's based on looking at other types of rock that tell us about the conditions at that time that all influence the dinosaurs themselves. You find yourself borrowing a little bit from chemistry, borrowing a little bit from biology, maybe some from physics or math. Paleontologists are using all the tools they have to fill in the details and round out the story behind the rise of the dinosaurs. The story Jessica just told us is what we know so far. There's lots more fossil clues out there. So there's lots more waiting to be discovered. So what questions do you have about the rise of the dinosaurs? What more would you like to know about the world that they lived in and the extinction that they made it through? So 
it turns out dinosaurs didn't dominate the earth just because they were really cool, though that is why they dominated the school cafeteria and the football team. <laughs> Wait, when did they dominate the football team? Haven't you seen dinosaur football? Like, no. You try to tackle a Tyrannosaurus Rex. A T-saurus? Anyway. Is that a T-size <laughs> dinosaur? <laughs> turns out that they had other traits that allowed them to survive over other animals. It's still crazy to me that feathers were the key to dinosaur domination. Feathers just seem so fluffy and cute. Speaking of feathers, our next stop is all about ancient owls. Are we asking who are owls? We are. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking about owls. Where did these mysterious birds come from, and why did they stay up at night? Everyone knows the owls came here to party, and the best parties are at night. <laughs> to find the real answer, we'll learn about a tree that contains every bird species that's ever lived, and discover how bird scientists created it. This is going to be a hoot! Brayden and Giselle are two Tumble listeners who both sent us questions about owls, and they both told us what they thought the answers to their questions might be. Let's listen. Hi, my name is Brayden. I'm 10 years old, and my question is, what is the origin of owls? Are new species of owls still bred? I think the origin of owls is that humans got two kinds of birds and bred them until the owl was born. I'm Giselle Reyes, and I'm nine years old and from Texas. My question is, why do owls sleep in the morning and wake up at night? I think it might be because prey and predators are asleep, so they can catch their prey and be sick from predators. And I just want to say that I'm such a big fan of Temple. Thank you, Marshall and Lindsay. Oh, thanks, Giselle. <laughs> That's so sweet. These are both great questions about owls, who are known for being mysterious birds. So let's ask our listeners to come up with their own answers to these questions. What is the origin of owls, and are new owls still emerging? And why do owls sleep in the morning and wake up at night? And how do you think scientists might find out the answers to these questions? Think about it. Okay, so you got your ideas together? Feel free to pause the podcast if you're still thinking. We have an awesome ornithologist, a bird scientist, to guide us on our journey of owl discovery. Scott Edwards studied the evolution and biology of birds. And to answer Brayden and Giselle's question, he first looked at a picture. I'm looking at a picture of this genealogical tree. What's that? What's a genealogical tree? It's a fancy word for a family tree. Oh, like the kind that shows how you're related to your family. Exactly. But Scott's looking at the bird family tree. It tracks all the species of birds back for tens of millions of years. And yes, that tree shows that owls, they go back a long way. They go back almost... 65 million years ago, almost at the time of that asteroid. Wait, what? Like, what asteroid is he talking about? He's talking about the asteroid that killed almost all of the dinosaurs. What do you mean, almost all? 
dinosaurs didn't actually go extinct. They, in fact, the birds, all the birds are still with us today, and they're thought to be descended from dinosaurs. So you're telling me that the story of owls goes all the way back to the dinosaurs? Yes. So I did not expect that. (laughs) You might also be surprised that dinosaur times have a lot to do with why owls are nocturnal. What? Many of the dinosaurs were diurnal. They're, you know, cold-blooded, meaning they can't really regulate their temperature. So they have to be out during the day when it's warm, just like uh, modern lizards today. Because dinosaurs could only be up while the sun was up, mammals, a.k.a. dinosaur food, figured out that it was safer for them to be up while dinosaurs were asleep. They naturally became nocturnal so as not to compete with the dinosaurs. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. If there are giant T-Rexes roaming around, you definitely don't want to be out while they're out. (laughs) Then, when an asteroid hit the Earth, mammals weren't just dinosaur food items. They diversified into new species to fill the spaces where dinosaurs used to be. But the species that owls like to eat... Things like small rodents and mice and shrews. Stayed nocturnal. So that's a long story to sort of help you figure out why it is that owls are nocturnal. It's mostly because a lot of their prey is nocturnal. So let me see if I got this right. So mammals became nocturnal to stay away from dinosaur mealtimes. Then owls came along and because they're super wise, figured out that there was a free-flowing mammal buffet at night. And then they became nocturnal to catch it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. But how do we know that? Like, how did scientists draw that bird family tree and put owls 65 million years back? And how do we know that they've been nocturnal all along? Well, this is where it gets really interesting. And it starts with the grandfather of evolution, Charles Darwin. Darwin believed that all organisms had a common ancestor, meaning at one point they were all one species. So there was like one great-great-great-grandparent animal. Exactly. The start of the entire family tree of all animal life. Through adapting to different environments, organisms can evolve in new ways and, and change over time. Over a lot of time, these organisms become so different that they can't breed together anymore. They split uh, from one species into two species. And scientists call that uh, process the process of speciation. That's how one species can uh, diversify into two. So that's how you get like all the different kinds of birds there are in the bird family tree. Yeah, it's not like, did one bird have a baby with another type of bird? But speciation is a long and natural process. And I'm assuming the birds don't have like a birdancestry.com where they can look up their ancestors and be like, oh, I got someone who came over on the asteroid. <laughs> came over on the asteroid? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> are you talking about alien birds? <laughs> There's probably some. No, 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 there are not. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely would explain macaws. <laughs> macaws. So how do scientists create this tree? They developed a couple of different techniques. The first is getting clues in DNA. These days, we can use the DNA in the cells of living organisms to figure out how different species are related to each other. 
Scientists read DNA, or the genetic code of each animal, as a long series of letters. They take DNA from different bird species and compare their letters to each other. Closely related species will have very small difference in the sequence of their DNA and the DNA letters, whereas distantly related species, ones that came from an ancestor a long time ago, they will have lots and lots of differences in the DNA letters in their cells. Yeah, so the more similar the letters are, the more recently the birds became different species. Exactly. So who are owls most related to? Who are, who are their cousins? We think that eagles and possibly uh, vultures may have been relatives of owls. Okay, so other predatory birds with like big claws and screeching cries. Uh, that makes sense. <laughs> so if there are a lot of different species of owls now, who was the common ancestor, like the great grandma owl? And how do we know that she was nocturnal? That's a really good question. There's now around 200 species of owls, and they all have one common ancestor. So let's zoom into that bird family tree and draw an owl family tree off of it. At the base of our owl tree, we've got the single common ancestral owl species. That owl species diverged into two. So that trunk with the original granddaddy and grandmama owl splits into two, leading to two branches. And if you can imagine that both sets of species have some trait in common, like in the case of owls, if both are nocturnal, we can make a pretty strong inference that the common ancestor also had that condition. So wait, what does he mean by an inference? It's the science word for making a conclusion based on an observation. Okay, so they can assume that if both the related owls are nocturnal, then the ancient owl was probably nocturnal too. But if we weren't there to watch ancient owls hunt, how do we know that they did it at night? Well, that's the second technique. Scientists also look at owl fossils. Oh, and if they find them at night, that means... <laughs> that makes perfect sense. <laughs> no, no, no. When we see a fossil that has traits that are similar between it and owls today, that's another indication that the common ancestor of owls probably had that trait as well. Okay, so they're like, if today's owls look like this and do that, and ancient owls also look like this, they probably also did that. Yeah, and owl fossils do provide some pretty strong clues that owls have been night owls for a long time. I see what you did there. First of all, owls have very, very big eyes. You can imagine why an owl would have very big eyes. I mean, because it makes them look smarter, like they're wearing a little pair of glasses. <laughs> no, they're using them to see at night. He needs big eyes to capture as much light as possible. So owls actually see night as being brighter than we do? Yeah, their night vision is amazing. To hold those big eyes, they have these bony rings in their eyes called sclerotic rings. That's a complicated word, sclerotic rings. But basically, it's a ring of bones that help anchor the eye uh, in the skull. These eye socket rings are found in the fossils of ancient owls as well. We think it's a reasonable assumption to infer that if nocturnal owls today have large eyes, then it's likely that fossil owls did as well. So that's, that's 
one powerful way by which we can infer behaviors that we haven't directly seen. Okay, so I think I'm really getting the bird family tree and the fossil connection. So basically, scientists are putting fossils on this branch all the way back to when great-grandma owl split off from her common ancestor with other birds. Well, not exactly. Wait, what? There's a big empty space at the beginning of the owl branch. It's pretty blank. You know, I'm looking, I'm just looking around to see. We have owls going back um, almost 50 million years, and yet they look like modern owls. That's the case with a lot of, of bird groups, I would say. Wait, so we don't have ancient bird fossils? But somehow, through some sort of science magic, we know that they branch off like 65 million years ago? Yes, and this is the final technique to help make the bird family tree, a time machine. We use a tool called a molecular clock. Wait, oh, well, you know, why didn't you mention that at the beginning? They just climb into the time machine and then go back and they're like, oh, look, owls, 65 million years ago. No, no, a molecular clock is not a time machine you can, like, shrink yourself down into a molecule and climb into. What it does do is allow scientists to turn back time through DNA. That's a very powerful way for figuring out when two species might have diverged, even when we don't have fossils directly linking those two species. So this sounds crazy. Like, so how does it work? The molecular clock combines the two techniques we just talked about, DNA and fossils. It puts them together into an equation that figures out how fast species might have changed between these two fossil examples. So like to figure out how long a second is on the clock. Yeah, or like how many millions of years on the clock. And once they know that, they can tick back the clock on all kinds of different bird species and find out when they branched off on that tree. We're able to essentially determine or at least estimate when two groups of species might have diverged. Wow, that's so clever. In this way, scientists could complete the bird family tree and find owls' place on it. So given that it's been all this work to figure it out, I'm assuming we humans didn't get to breed owls for their round heads and lack of necks and stunning eyesight and hearing. No, and it turns out owls are only bred in captivity to like help keep their species alive if they're endangered. I would say owls in general are not... Um... They're not a popular species for keeping among humans. Well, muggles, of course not. <laughs> but owls are popular among wizards. I actually asked Scott my own owl question, which is, can owls deliver letters and packages tied to their legs? <laughs> I have never heard of that. There may be some cultures that, uh, that do that, but I've never heard of uh, an owl you know, returning in the same way like an eagle would. I can't believe he's never heard of Harry Potter. <laughs> Scientists will have to study enchanted owls next. Try making your own bird family tree. Check out the image that scientists created of the bird family tree on our website, and then make your own version using all of your creative talents. How can you show the connections between bird species and when they evolved? Get artistic. We'd love to see what you make. So owls are really old, like really, really old. That's why they're so wise. Wiser than us? 
Well, it took us a long, long time to get our big brains. Yeah, our skulls were quite tiny at first. Ooh, that means I know where we're headed, to the skull of the ancient primates. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're climbing up the family tree to find our primate relatives. Scientists are using the fossil record to uncover family mysteries because we can't find them on Ancestry.com. Our listener Elena wrote in and wants to know who were the first primates and how long ago did they live? Were they our great-great-great-grandparents? Unfortunately, we couldn't get in touch with Elena by email after she sent in this amazing question. But Elena, this is for you. For you, I took a field trip to a place that's chock full of fossils. I'm Lindsay. Nice to meet nice you, to meet Lindsay. You. Come on in. This is Chris me. Kirk is a professor of anthropology at the University of Texas, Austin, who studies ancient primates. He's promised to answer Elena's question, but first, he's showing me around the vertebrate paleontology lab. Oh, so that means that they study fossils of animals with spines. Crabs and insects and squishy things apply elsewhere. <laughs> exactly. This lab is a massive storehouse of fossils that have been discovered over the past hundred years or so. And so you can see we have rows and rows of steel cases in the collections area. And if I open one of them up, what you can see are many, many drawers. And within these drawers are many, many fossils. Let me just pull one out for you. The cases are like filing cabinets that you'll have to use a stepladder to reach the top of. But the things they hold are small, delicate, and mind-blowingly old. Here is a single tooth and a little bit of jaw from a deer-like animal that lived about 42 million years ago. Wow. And These just look like pebbles. Like, they're just tiny little fragments. You might be able to recognize this one a little bit better. This is a little teeny lower jaw with a single tooth in it. Unfortunately, that tooth is so busted up, I can't quite tell what it is. <laughs> Somehow, I'm not too surprised that a tooth that's 42 million years old is pretty busted up. I know mine are 36, and they're not in the best condition. <laughs> well, it's very rare to find fossils that old in perfect condition. Paleontologists and anthropologists like Chris are more likely to find fragments of bone than a perfect skeleton. So it's like they have to find these tiny puzzle pieces from all around the world and they don't know what the picture is on the box. Yes, but the puzzle is the evolution of primates, the group all of us humans are a part of. Primates is our group that uh, includes monkeys, apes, humans, lemurs, bush babies, tarsiers, and things like that. Finding fossils is just the beginning of a long process of discovery. We spend, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours in the field collecting fossils. Then we have to sort through what we collect. We have to prepare it. That means we have to fix anything that's broken. In the lab, Chris and his team carefully clean the fossils. 
So that's not what paleontologists are doing in the movies. Like, where's all the swinging from vines and uh, avoiding poison darts? Yeah, I think the director cuts those scenes <laughs> of the painstaking time in the lab. Uh, for every hour we have a crew in the field, there may be... 10, there may be 100 hours here in the lab working with those materials, getting them ready to study. But what I'm about to show you are two of the absolute gems of the collection. Amazing. Let's go see that. Chris takes me to a special drawer, apart from the huge steel cases. I'm pulling out uh, a few of our fossil primates uh, to show you. He pulls out two cardboard boxes, so small and light he can hold them in his fingers. Yeah, or they look like a jewel box, like you would have some earrings in there. Yeah, one of them's even been spray-painted bronze. But I I open it up, and inside each of these, we have the skull of a fossil primate. When he opens the box, it's like we're looking into the sarcophagus of a mummy. The skulls are both resting in a custom mold— Unlike what I'd seen earlier, they're in really good condition. You can see these beautiful little teeth preserved like little jewels. The specimens have names based on their genus, Runia and Margarita. When Chris lifts them out, it scares me how delicate they are. And can we just say, like, these are tiny little skulls. You can hold them between your forefinger and thumb... Would you believe it if I told you that these are giant honking primates? No. Wait, so when did these giant honking primates live? 38 million years ago, during a time period called the Eocene, when Texas was a tropical forest. I wonder if it was as hot then as it is now. (laughs) Most of what I find uh, in the Eocene of West Texas is really small, you know, about the size of a rat. Uh, I have a geologist friend who teases me that I like to go look for monkey rats. Chris didn't find these particular monkey rats himself. They were discovered back in the 1960s and 70s. If the animals look like rats, how do we know that they're primates and not just, you know, rats? One of the most recognizable things that makes a primate a primate, anybody can see this at the zoo, is all primates have forward-facing eyes. You know, when Runia lived 38 million years ago, here's a fossil primate that had forward-facing eyes, just like you and me and all other primates that are alive today. I'm still getting over it that this thing right in front of us is 38 million years old. Right, 38 million years old, that's, that's pretty old, but if you consider that uh, the earliest primates in the fossil record, uh, it's, a, it's a fossil genus called Peyerdina that's about 56 million years old. Wait, so Rooney and Margarita aren't the oldest primates? No, far from it. They're 20 million years younger than the oldest known primate, a species that was as small as a mouse with big round eyes and a long tail. Sounds really cute. And that is going to be the earliest definite primate in the fossil record. So that is the answer to Elena's question. I'm going to go get that critter into Ancestry.com, and it will be everyone's oldest relative. Great-grandpa monkey rat. (laughs) (laughs) Great, 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 great. Like a lot of greats, like a couple million of them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I know, but not exactly. What Chris said is that it's the earliest definite primate in the fossil record. That means it's the oldest primate that scientists know about. 
Oh, I see. So there could be older primates. It's just we haven't found them yet. Right. And the question of who were the first primates and when and how they evolved is a mystery that involves the extinction of dinosaurs. The answer, based on genetic estimates, is probably about the same time most of the non-avian, or all non-avian dinosaurs were killed in a mass extinction uh, called the Chicxulub impact. This was about 66 million years ago. The first primates appeared on the scene right after the dinosaurs were killed? Sometime right around then. So an asteroid hit the Earth, wiped nearly everything off the planet, and then our family pops up. That is kind of suspicious. How do we know the monkeys aren't responsible for the asteroid? (laughs) (laughs) Well, scientists don't deal in conspiracy theories about monkeys and space (laughs) objects. They're actually dealing with genetic evidence. They get that evidence by diving into the genes of primates that are alive today and comparing them to mammals that are closely related to us. And they're looking for that moment when primates branched off the family tree from other mammals. So they're looking for our common ancestor, our mutual great-great-great-great-great-etc. Grandparent. Pick any two organisms on this planet, they share a common ancestor at some point in the past. It doesn't matter if it's humans and chimpanzees or humans and bananas right we've all there's always a common ancestor at some point in the past with the help of fossils scientists can make a rough estimate of when that common ancestor might have lived and when primates became primates and the best bet is that that common ancestor of the two groups lived right around 66 million years ago maybe a little bit older than the impact that killed Uh, most of the dinosaurs, or maybe a little bit younger than the impact that killed most of the dinosaurs. Whoa, so what does he mean that the best bet is that they lived 66 million years ago? Well, scientists do know that around the time of the impact that killed most of the dinosaurs, mammals started to go crazy diversifying. Oh, like, you know, now we have rodents, we got bears, we got a mastodon, some mammoths, those giant sloth things, 90-foot-tall kangaroos. But scientists just don't know when primates branched off from mammals into our own separate group. And it's 56 million years ago, 10 million years after that mass extinction event, that we actually pick them up in the fossil record. The fossil record means the fossils that we've already found. It's not just, like you know, a book where we write them down. Exactly. So Chris is saying that there's 10 million years of primate evolution that we know nothing about that some future paleontologist might uncover. And if any of you future paleontologists are listening right now and you in the deserts of West Texas discover an adorable little monkey rat, just think about maybe naming it after me. Like maybe Marshallicus monkey raticus. <laughs> All right, so to answer Elena's question, the oldest primate that we know of is 56 million years old, but we could have a much, much, much older ancestor that we don't know yet. But could we say whatever it is that it is our great, 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 like a lot of greats grandfather? We can't exactly say that scientifically, but we are very, very distantly related The bigger picture is how that animal led to all of primates. It's one piece of the overall puzzle 
of understanding the evolution of primates as a group. Oh, wow. Well, I never thought about the extinction of dinosaurs and their relationship to us as humans. I mean, I still wish that there were dinosaurs that roamed the earth, but I guess that we can't have both. Oh, there are plenty of dinosaurs. I mean, yes, they're birds, they're birds, but um, the the really big ones that we could maybe ride. Uh, <laughs> yeah, could they have been domesticated? Uh, that, that's, that's tough to say. Um, you might try putting a saddle on an ostrich. I have tried that. I can't say that I recommend it as like an efficient way to get around. Ostriches don't really have backs, so it's hard to like sit on them. And they run really fast away from you. (laughs) (laughs) They do. And also like they have these like velociraptor claws on their feet that they will kick you with. Living dinosaurs. (laughs) They are. They're terrifying. Well, maybe it's more realistic to imagine our tiny primate ancestors hanging out with dinosaurs. You think tiny monkey rats rode ostriches? Oh my gosh, this ostrich is running really fast, guys! I think it was more like an unlikely friendship with a (laughs) T-Rex. Don't worry, this one's friendly. That was my favorite episode about evolution. (laughs) That monkey rat voice still makes me laugh. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I'm laughing right now. Can I have a peanut? (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, it's crazy how our ancestors were so small compared to us. I know. And now we just have dogs that are so small compared to us. For scale. (laughs) I mean, like, we're so big now. Look at this dog I made. (laughs) so we're almost back to our present time and look we're surrounded by all breeds of dogs big ones little ones fluffy ones skinny ones (laughs) (laughs) i know you could go on describing dogs forever so i'll say it it's decoding dog dna that's the episode hi i'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking about dogs. Hooray! I hope we're only talking about good dogs. They're all good dogs. Who's a good dog? But they look and act so different. We're going to investigate the history of dog breeds to find out how scientists are decoding the secrets to what makes every dog so special. Today's question comes from Finley. My name is Finley Mecca. I'm 10 years old. Why are there deer-headed and apple-headed chihuahuas? I didn't know this until Finley sent us her question, but there are two kinds of chihuahua, and Finley has one of each. Peanut has a round head like an apple, and Maggie has a sloped head like a baby deer. Finley told us that she's curious about why their heads look so different. I think the answer to this question might be something about their DNA, but I don't really know yet. So I think I know the answer. There were once two brother chihuahuas. One fell in love with a deer and the other fell in love with an apple. To get the real answer to Finley's question, I called up a scientist who studies dogs and is a real dog lover herself. 
Fitz, come here, baby. That's Jessica Heckman. Our interview had three listeners who you might hear clicking their nails and panting. Her dogs, Jenny, Dash, and Fitz, who was just getting settled into his new life. Yesterday, I adopted a third dog from a shelter, and we have named him Fitz. And he's a very good dog, and he's very happy to be here. So basically, Jessica is a dog person and a dog scientist. It's good to be both. Definitely. She's fascinated by what makes dogs look and behave the way that they do. She told me that the answer to Finley's question starts with why we have dogs in the first place. The story begins tens of thousands of years ago. What we currently think happened is that around, let's say, 20,000 years ago, there were some animals that were sort of like dogs and sort of like wolves. And some group of them figured out that they could get more food more easily by hanging out near humans. That's because wherever humans were, there were food scraps. I think everybody who has a dog knows how this works. Throw food on the floor, dog comes, cleans it up. You don't have to clean the floor. (laughs) And so these animals figured out, these sort of dog wolves figured out, hey, if I'm willing to go eat from the human's trash, then it's much easier than going and, and hunting. Scientists are still trying to figure out if this happened in just one place or if it happened in many places in many times. But dogs became domesticated or tame enough to live with humans. Or be our best animal friends. And that's when humans started breeding dogs. Certainly for thousands of years, we've bred dogs to do different things. Humans realized that dogs could not just make their trash disappear but do other useful things for us, too. Like um, protecting things or herding sheep, finding things that are lost, all those kinds of jobs. They did that by mating two dogs with traits, meaning behaviors or looks, that they liked. So, like, two dogs that are good at herding sheep are probably going to have puppies that are also good at herding sheep. Exactly. Then they'll take the best sheep herder from that litter and mate it with another great sheep herding dog from another litter. And then they'll repeat that cycle again and again until a new breed is created that looks different from other kinds of dogs. Similar to how evolution works, but what we call artificial selection, meaning that humans have the goals rather than nature having the goal, right? Through artificial selection, we made different breeds of dogs for different jobs. And as pets, too. But sometimes nature helps out with a lucky mistake. So sometimes a mutation happens and a dog shows up that all of a sudden just looks really different. Like one puppy in the litter suddenly looks really different from all the other puppies. Mutation? Is that like mutants? Like, you know, like storm? Like they can... There's, like, puppies who can change the weather. (laughs) I think the puppies would, like, always want it to be a nice day to go to the park. Yes, they would. (laughs) But these are not the ex-puppies. A mutation is the word we use to describe when there's a random change in DNA that creates a brand new trait we've never seen before. Uh, Black coat color is a mutation that appeared in dogs. And so there used to be no black wolves at all. And then some dogs got loose and bred with wolves, and now there are black wolves. I thought the black wolves were just the werewolves. Nope, it's genetics. So Finley's dogs probably got their head shapes with some combination of mutation, where a random change in the DNA creates a brand new trait 
and artificial selection, where breeders mate dogs with the traits they want to see more of. And then breeders are like, well, that's cool. Yeah, and then they're like, let's see how far we can take this. About 250 years ago in the Victorian era, people started realizing they could also breed dogs to look certain ways. And at the time, there were a lot of fads of, well, can I, can I make these really funny looking dogs? What if they were this color we've never seen before? What if their ears were really, really big? What if their legs were really short? What if they had almost no muzzle? I guess that's why some dogs have like really ridiculously adorable little wrinkly faces and barely any nose. Exactly. Just choose the wrinkliest dog with the least nose and mate them with the other super wrinkly dog with almost no nose. But there were a lot of steps to get to like a pug. <laughs> exactly. Many generations. But to go back to Finley's dogs, chihuahuas are not from Victorian breeding. They're from Mexico, and their head shapes have probably existed for a really long time. Archaeologists have actually found ancient pots in the shapes of chihuahuas, featuring both apple heads and deer heads. So ancient breeders were probably selecting for these cool looks, just like today's breeders. Okay, so now we know the history of dog breeds and how breeding works— but is Finley right about how scientists would find out what made her dog's head shapes? Like, can they look into the dog DNA and see apple and deer? Well, that's getting to exactly what Jessica studies. One of the things that we do in the laboratory where I work is we try to understand how genes uh, and DNA affect dogs' behavior, but also their body shapes. Genes are made up of DNA. They're the thing that controls what gets passed down to the next generation. So when dog breeders were saying, I want this dog and this dog to make the best puppies, maybe they'll control the weather. <laughs> what they're doing is just trying to choose which genes get passed down. Right. And now scientists have the tools to see into a dog's DNA to try and figure out what those genes actually look like and where they are. But it's not easy. The amount of DNA that each individual has is so, so, so big. It's like a massive, massive, massive book or like a whole library of books which are written in another language and you don't know the language. That does sound hard. Jessica's lab is working to read these books of dog genes. They believe that the books hold the secrets to why dogs look and act the way that they do. But first, they need to learn the language. And they're doing that by starting small and identifying really simple genes. One of the things that was really easy is coat color. So they started out looking at boxers, and boxers can either be all brown or brown with some white, or they can be all white. They compared the genetic books of 10 brown boxers to the genetic books of 10 white boxers. And they did a comparison where they tried to see, so where is it in the DNA that all the brown ones look like one way and all the white ones look a different way? All the brown boxers had one gene written one way, but the same gene in the white boxers was written a different way. It's like the scientists could finally read the words in the dog's genetic book for brown and white fur color. 
So to bring it back to Finley's question, that would be exactly the same way that you would try to understand, are there genes that are causing the difference between having an apple-shaped head versus a deer-shaped head? You'd have to look through that huge book of DNA and try to find where there are a couple spots that control that. Okay, so hypothetically, if we compared Maggie's book of DNA to Peanut's book of DNA, we could find the gene that creates the difference between their head shapes. That's the idea. But scientists are still a long way from it being that easy. So we can open those books and read out the letters. We can even say that's a word and that's a paragraph. We can do that kind of thing. But we don't know what the meaning is. Wow, so it's like they're trying to decode like a whole brand new language that no one speaks. I wonder who will be the first one to be fluent in DNA. (laughs) It's kind of like the universal language of life. All of our bodies speak it. Every living thing has it. And if we can understand it in dogs, we can understand it in humans too. And probably butterflies, bacteria, goats, whales, cyclopses, (laughs) centaurs. It would be huge. But most of the language of DNA is much, much more complicated than coat color. Jessica's lab has discovered that often there's not just one spot or one gene that controls a dog's looks or behavior. Wow. So how do they figure out how that all works together? Well, Jessica's part of an exciting project that's calling on dog owners all over the world to help them crack the code. I would definitely call it citizen science, yes. Yeah, so it's like regular people get to help out with real scientific research. Yes, the project is called Darwin's Ark, and its goal is to discover the genes for dog behavior and personality using DNA tests and surveys. And we'll ask you all about, you know, what your dog does in certain situations and how they spend their day. So, like, the dogs are making, like, a, like a diary, like, Today I laid on the couch for a while. Then someone passed by the door, and I got excited and barked. They were scared and left. And then there was food. It was great. (laughs) When Jessica and her colleagues can match the owner's questionnaire answers to their dog's DNA, they can answer all sorts of fascinating questions about why certain kinds of dogs do what they do. The only thing I want to know is who's a good dog? It's funny because that's literally Jessica's biggest research question. (laughs) She wants to know what makes a good dog a good dog. I am just really curious about what it is that makes dogs be a certain way. I always thought that that was just a rhetorical question and that the dogs always answered it with, Me! Me! I'm the good boy! I'm the good dog! (laughs) Well, now we can officially answer it with science. Do you have a dog or a favorite breed of dog? Think about what makes them so special. Is it something about the way they look, act, or something they're good at doing, like licking your face and leaving it covered with slobber? (laughs) Think about what that trait is and how and why we humans might have wanted our dogs to have it. Does it make them good workers, good companions, or just so darn lovable you just can't stop petting them? If you were Jessica, what kinds of questions would you ask to find out what makes that dog the way that it is?
Okay, well, everything's normal again, even the parking lot outside the Wendy's, where we've reached our final destination. (laughs) We made it all the way back in time to today, and it was a pleasure to guide you on this evolutionary animal safari. We dove into the origins of how animals began to walk on land, we documented the rise of the dinosaurs, we examined the owl family tree, and our own mammal family tree, too. And... We found out how we shaped dogs to be our best friends. We learned so much on this drive. So when you get to where you're going, take a look around at the animal life around you. What questions do you have about how they evolved and why? Send us your questions to us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks today to Peter Anger, who came up with the idea for the Evolutionary Safari and wrote the script. Also thanks to Hadley Jevin. Peter and Hadley are both our awesome summer interns. To learn more, go to the blog on our website, sciencepodcastforkids.com. Sarah Robertson Lentz made the episode art and is our head of partnerships. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I produced and edited this episode. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I did the sound design. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery. Thanks so much for listening to that episode. And now it's time for some birthday shout-outs. Reese, stay curious, and happy birthday on July 10th. Onya and Dearmid, long car rides are better with Tumble. Mom and Dad love you loads, and happy birthday to Onya on July 15th and Dearmid on July 31st. Happy birthday to Anton on July 15th, one of the funniest and kindest kids in the galaxy. Your family loves you to the moon and back. Good morning, Felix Joel. Happy birthday on July 20th from Mom, Kevin, Martin, and the Sanchez family. Keep being curious. Don't ever stop asking questions. Stay focused, my little scientist. Mommy Bear loves you forever. And on July 22nd, happy birthday, Chester Beck. You are mom and dad's favorite carbon-based life form ever. Thanks to all of you and to everyone who supports Tumble on Patreon. To get a birthday shout-out of your own like these fine folks, just go to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast and support us at the $5 level or higher. Once again, that's patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. And join us next time for more stories of science discovery and more birthday shout-outs.